Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Warning, the following content may contain elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, kitties. This is y'all's Dooley, John Kassir, the voice of the Crypt Keeper. And you're listening to Slasher Radio. <laughs> Whoa, hold up. Wait a minute. It's your boy Bones here, guys. Hang on. We're doing something a little different right now. This is a re-release. Wait, what? Yes, a re-release from uh, an old episode of Slasher Radio. And this is our interview with Doug Bradley. The topic had come up of uh, the Michael Myers vs. Pinhead movie that unfortunately never seen the light of day uh, during an episode of Versus. So if you're not familiar with Versus, you're f***ing up and you're missing out. That is part of the Slasher Radio Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash slasher radio. That is an, uh, a show that is on Rob's um, uh, Lord Humphrey audio something. Rob's network. And that is exclusive to the Slasher Radio Patreon. So during this episode of Versus, we threw down Wes Craven versus John Carpenter and the Michael Myers versus Pinhead topic came up. And I was like, you know, Doug Bradley talked about that when we had him on a while ago. So I figured, you know what, let me go back and listen to it, familiarize myself with it. And I noticed some audio problems that were going on that I just now became aware of. So I say, you know what, let me chop it and cut it and give you guys the guts and what you really cared about. The interview with Doug Bradley, everything else that was on that episode is pretty irrelevant to for what the show is today. So I said, fuck it, we're just going to keep it short and sweet, remaster it with better audio and and throw it back out there for you guys to enjoy anyone who maybe hasn't heard it before you can listen to it for the first time and everyone else who has maybe enjoy it again you know it's been a while and who who doesn't like hearing doug bradley get a job you bum you know what i'm saying so i'm gonna stop wasting your time enjoy the interview guys but don't forget to go to patreon.com forward slash slasher radio so you don't miss anything support indie horror damn it enjoy <laughs> I'm still having trouble mustering up the words to introduce our guest, Mr. Doug Bradley himself, the legend. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, I'm very well. How are you? We're, we're doing great. You're doing great. Uh, April, I know you had wanted to kind of jump things off. Right, yeah. Um, I was looking at your website and noticed, um, you know, your book, and I was kind of reading up on it. And you had, um, within the book, you include interviews with, uh, you know, Robert England and Gunnar Hansen, you know, just to name a few. Um, and I read that you actually conducted these interviews yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was, I mean, I, it, 
this thing somehow has uh, stayed in print now for uh, 21 years. Wow. Uh, I believe, I think I'm right saying, I forget myself now, but I think it was 1997 when it first came out. And uh, yes, when I, when, um, uh, uh, when when I knew I was going to be in including their work, I, I approached Gunnar and Kane and Robert, both of whom I already knew. I'd made a movie with Robert, and I knew uh, uh, both Gunnar and Kane pretty well by that time from the convention circuit and doing uh, haunted house appearances and so forth. So, yeah, I did those interviews with them. And what was it like for you? I mean, normally, I mean, even now, you're usually on the other side of the interview. How? What was it like on more so doing the, the other side of that? Well, I mean, it was kind of fun, given that I I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never done that before, and I was I, I was recording them as you're doing it now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's pretty primitive. Uh, I know when I came to uh, transcribe them, they were very, very quiet. Um, uh, and I had to do a lot of, you know, rewinding and playing in order to mm-hmm. to catch exactly what were, they were saying, but be, be, between the recording and my memory of what they had said at the time. But I, I, I knew particularly where I was going with the interview. So it, it was, uh, because what the, the focus of my book, um, is, uh, uh, masking and uh, transformational roles so that in the, in the book I start out with a kind of brief history, uh, cultural history, if you like, of uh, of masking, very brief because it's such a huge topic. Um, uh, and then uh, I went to the, the, the origins of drama as we understand it um, uh, in ancient Greek when all the actors were masked. Uh, it would have been unthinkable for, uh, for, for, for them to put an actor on stage unmasked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and then I came, I looked at other masked theater traditions as well, specifically, uh, no theater in Japan. And, uh, then, um, I came uh, into movies and and horror movies, which is really the the place where those transformational roles and the and the place of the masked actor has found its home in the uh, in the twentieth century. So I started back with uh, Lon Chaney Senior, and what I specifically wanted to look at was actors' relation the actors' relationship to their masks, which varies greatly. You know, I mean, as we know, for Lon Chaney Senior, it was, it was, a, it was like a, a calling, and he was exceptional in that he designed, and made, and wore um, all his own uh, makeups, uh, and then moved, you know, moved on through the through the process of, uh, of horror movies. So I knew I was going to come up to the present day, and that before I got into talking about. Uh, me coming to Pinhead and, and that experience for me from a personal point of view that I wanted to look at, uh, their work and their relationship to their makeup. So the, the interviews had fairly narrow parameters in, in that regard. 
And you had mentioned going back to horror, and I, I understand that it's, you know, kind of more relevant to where you were going. But just in general, or have you always been a fan of the horror genre? Because strangely enough, even, you know, the you doing Pinhead with Hellraiser, and we've spoken to people who really aren't fans of it. And it's, it's like mind-blowing to us as, as viewers. So have, has that always been something you enjoyed? Absolutely, yes. I was. I mean, I was a fan of uh, horror films as a teenager. And I, I can go all the way back to, you know, as, as a kid, I was, I was obsessed with ghosts, uh, terrified of them, but, uh, you know, couldn't get, couldn't get enough of them. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I, I, I've always said my, um, my, my introduction to horror uh, on a serious basis was um, would be I think in the uh, uh, in the early 1970s when I was I was in Liverpool in the northwest of England and the, the local television company was uh, was Granada Television and right after the news at 10 which was the 30 minute evening news on ITV uh, which was the, the independent commercial station mm. uh, Granada Television's started showing all of Hannah's movies. Um, so that, that was, that was at Monday night was 10 30 PM. That was my date with, uh, with, with, uh, with horror. So that was, that was really my serious inroad into, into horror. But that, you know, I was, I was a fan of the genre long before, um, I knew that I was going to be, um, be an actor professionally uh and um and i, and I remain a fan of the genre and uh, you know you of course you've done uh, numerous films and that's i was going to go into the audiobooks section and talk a little bit about that your spine chillers right. um, um mm-hmm. volume 13 was the last one i think you featured jeffrey combs on that and it was released in 2014 i believe do you have any plans to release any more um things like that in the future yes uh uh, well, that that kind of thirteen volume, that's kind of a that's kind of a set. And uh, um, Jeffrey did 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 more. What 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 he's reading on volume thirteen is the final story of the. I mean, you know, this was, this was my great brainwave. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. let's get Jeffrey Combs to read the reanimator stories, right? Because um, mm-hmm. uh, no one would ever think of doing that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so he's, I, I lose track myself now of the, the maths of it, but are there five stories in the reanimate the Herbert West series? I think, I think it's five anyway. So on the so. last five, if, if I'm correct, then, uh, the, the last five volumes, he's reading one of those stories, but he also read, uh, Poe's, uh, the cask of Amontillado and, uh, um, which, which was funny. Recently, a guy came up to me at a convention, um, and he, he wanted to talk about spine chillers, which is always rewarding to me. It's always nice when someone wants to talk about, uh, spine chillers. And he said, I, I just wanted to say your reading of the cask of Amontillado, I think is the best I've ever heard. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, um, I, it's very kind of you, but actually, actually, um, that wasn't me. He kind of, no, no, you're, your spine chiller theories. You're, you're reading a cask of a month. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, but it wasn't me. <laughs> it, was, 
go and find Jeffrey Combs and tell him how good he was, um, uh, which, which he undoubtedly was. Uh, and he also read an Ambrose Spear story, uh, uh, A Fruitless Assignment. And Beers was new to me. I, I will freely admit I was absolutely ignorant of his existence. I guess Americans know him maybe more than we would in the UK, I think, particularly because of um, uh, the, um, the, the uh, oh God, those Civil War story, the, the bridge, um, and, and, and occurrence, an occurrence that, uh, uh, it's an Owl Creek Bridge. God, my memory, this is it. Decrepitude has overtaken me. <laughs> is that is Owl Creek Bridge right? That doesn't sound quite right. Anyway, uh, uh, um, that that I think is a very very well known story over here. But uh, when when I started um, garnering material for the Spine Chiller series, um, uh, I I uh, uh, I was given a, a book which was a collection of stories by. H.P. Lovecraft's favorite authors, and mm. specifically uh, his favorite stories by them, and there were three stories by Ambrose Bierce uh, in them, and I was uh, I was knocked over by them uh, and immediately scurried off and went off to find more by him, and I have become such a huge fan of his. Uh, he's very funny, um, structures his stories uh, Amazingly, for his time, you know, he very much did that acted narrative of dropping, starting somewhere in the middle of the story and then going out to the end of the story and wrapping around to come to the end. Uh, and he has a wonderfully cynical voice as well, which I like. Um, mm. And uh, um, so... Yes, became, became a huge fan of, of his, and he uh, he can boast the, the shortest story in the Spine Chillers collection, um, which is a deliciously nasty story called uh, Tom Mortensen's Funeral, which I think is is just barely over three minutes long, but it's a uh, mm-hmm. wonderful story, which is uh, Tom Mortensen's funeral, and he has a he has one of those viewing. A coffin, not an open casket, but a, a viewing casket with a glass panel in it where you could see the, the deceased's mm. face. Right. And he, he, uh, he, he, he wonderfully describes, um, the, uh, the, the funeral and, and then at the, at the end, <laughs> as Norm has come up to say goodbye to him, uh, one of them, I can't remember whether it's his wife or his mother, um, gets to the casket and shrieks and uh, goes crazy and um, uh, knocks the casket off the trestles and it falls to the floor and the glass viewing panel shatters and out of the wreckage of the casket steps um, Tom Mortensen's cap, which had accidentally got uh, shot in the coffin with Tom and had been quietly devouring Tom's face which oh and, and the uh, and and the wreckage of Tom's face was what was what greeted the mourners as they went to pay their last respects to Tom. 
uh, and with you know he describes at the end with this this the, the blood smeared around the, the cat's jowls as he as the, the cat calmly wanders away, wondering what all the commotion is about. He was he described um, he described the novel as a short story padded. Uh, um, uh, yes, so so that's Jeffrey contribution and Robert Englund also contributed to the series. He recorded uh um The Sleeper, Edgar Allan Poe's poem mm-hmm. and uh The Terrible Old Man by um uh HP Lovecraft and An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. And I, I'm now very confident that it is Owl Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh um so that so that's the spine chiller chiller series. Uh, um, we will do more. Um, uh, in fact, we've uh, I've I've completed what what would what we're doing is is author collections. Um, mm-hmm. Starting starting with Edgar, um, because there there were stories that that simply didn't get recorded for the thirteen volumes. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not complete by any means. Um, not all of Poe's stories fall under the, the spine chillers umbrella. Um, but there were, there were stories that, that probably ought to have been recorded that simply didn't get recorded because of time. I mean, I think we had, we had at least one Poe story and a poem on every volume, but some got left by the way. So I've added those that, uh, I thought deserve to be recorded, and I think I think it's uh, the oblong box, uh, murders in the Rue Morgue, um, uh, never bet the devil your head, um, and I think the imp of the perverse. And I can't honestly remember now whether whether that's on the original thirteen volumes or not. Those, and then I I recorded the bells. As well, questionable whether that belongs in a, in a spine-chilling uh, collection, but it's it's just such a tremendous poem, and 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 the last verse of it, I guess, does belong there. So that's kind of ready to go, and it won't. We we're, I think we we won't be putting those on CD at last, at least not at the moment. Um, but they'll be uh, they'll be available for download. Um, either in a full collection, and I think I'm going to record a new introduction uh, for it, um, uh, and that will be available soon. And then uh, the kind of the plan is to do the same thing for Lovecraft, and then the same thing for Ambrose Bierce, uh, because there are there are still stories. There's a lot of Lovecraft that didn't get recorded, uh, and there's still Ambrose Bierce stories that didn't get recorded. Um, and uh, the, there are other stories as well. There may be an English collection um, to, uh, to to put together. I mean, there were, there were stories by Dickens and uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and and uh, and other people too. Um, uh, so that may be another volume. And I always had it in my mind to to do a uh, Lady Chillers. Uh, a spine chillers yeah. collection, and uh, there are some really fine stories by by women writers. So 
Maybe that one too. So we'll we'll see. It's easy you, to talk um, about these things, but it all takes time. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I was going to get into. Do you prefer audiobooks versus film? Because I know it's a, it's probably a lot easier, I would think, to uh, you know to come up with an uh, audiobook than um, to go through the whole filming process. Well, it's 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 all a very very different thing. Do I prefer recording audiobooks to doing movies? No, no. Um, that that would that would be number one, I think. Or possibly still, actually, theater would would be number one. But, uh, um, but you know, each each is its own different channel uh, challenge, and each brings their own particular rewards and frustrations and annoyances. <laughs> um, um, but I've uh, I've uh, set up to be able to record at home now, so um, I can I can generate a bit of this stuff in terms of audiobooks, um, uh, a bit more uh, myself. And uh, in fact, I've completed uh, recording Barbie Wilde's uh, serial killer novel, The Venus Complex. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Bobby Wilde, of course. If anybody listening doesn't know, shame on you. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, female Cenobite in mm-hmm. Hellbound, the second Hellraiser movie. Um, and she, uh, she wrote, uh, the serial killer novel, which, which I thought was really rather good and, uh, suggested to her, uh, I do the audio book for it. It's, uh, it's recorded. So it's, um, it's, uh, the, the, the frustrations I mentioned, uh, it's in, in the final stages of, of getting the, um, the, the technical details right. Um, uh, which is down to me, um, you know, and, uh, as, uh, as an audio engineer, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty good actor, you know what I mean? So this is, uh, it's kind of, um, it's a learning curve for me, but I'm, um, uh, that's, uh, that's very nearly done. It'll be yeah, again. It won't be on CD, but it'll be available as a download at Audible, iTunes, and uh, Amazon. So it's great to hear that you do all of this yourself, because I know it can be a lot of work to, um, you know, put these things together and release them yourself. So will this be all on your website well, it, and everything as well? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would hope so. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's much easier when somebody else is doing all the work, you know. If someone else is, is doing the recording and the editing and the mastering and all the rest of it, um, you know, and uh, all I have to do is uh, roll up in the studio and flap my lips for a few hours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, all, uh, it's, all, it's all a great deal easier on that basis. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's... It, it's exciting to, to, to do this and, and, and follow the process all the way through. Yeah, I can definitely attest that whole audio editing is, is not fun. <laughs> not fun at all. No, no. It just, well, it just takes time. It's just yeah. you know, long-winded and, and there's, there's no shortcuts to be had. Well, there are, but it, it wouldn't sound good. <laughs> it would sound very No, bad. but I, oh, what, what, what I mean by that is, um, I, I, I'm aware that I, I can't let myself do it for any great length of time because I get, I get sloppy because mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. bored with it. And, 
Um, you know, I, if I listen to something and think, you know, I, I, I really should do that. Oh God, but how long is that going to take? Oh, never yeah, mind. I yeah. just do that instead. I try to I try to avoid falling that it falling into that pitfall. I'm I'm guilty of that myself. I, I think about oh, I could take this out, but oh my God, what a pain in the butt that'll be. Yeah, just leave it in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, you uh, April had mentioned uh, obviously your film work and how you prefer it. Uh, Hellraiser, one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic film franchise in the in the genre of horror and you were able to work with clive barker on that and um how was it to work alongside of him and um i mean he's such a an insanely creative storyteller and director so what was that experience like well it was fantastic but um but it wasn't it wasn't a new experience for me of course uh because uh um I, Clive and I were at the same high school in Liverpool. Oh. Um, and I first, I first met him in rehearsals for the school play when I guess I was about 14 or 15. He would be a couple of years older than me. Um, so, uh, and he was, he was already writing and producing and directing and hand drawing the posters for his own plays when he was at school. And I got drawn into that orbit. So I, I had experience of working with him, uh, as a, well, uh, where are we? I, I get very bad at doing maths these days because there's too many decades to work back through. Um, uh, the, so this, this would be the late, very late sixties, I think, when I was doing the school play with him and then doing stuff with him at school. And then after school and university, there was a group of us who had kind of constellated around, um, uh, Clive and we started doing, um, uh, experimental, uh, theater in Liverpool. The Everyman Theater in Liverpool used to, let us have access to the theater when it was dark. Uh, so we, we put stuff on there. Uh, and, uh, Pete Atkins became part of the process then. Pete Atkins also from, uh, from Liverpool, the, the Scouse Mafia. And of course, uh, uh, um, Pete is a member of the Scouse Mafia became very much part of the Hellraiser team, not directly on Hellraiser itself, but of course he wrote the, Screenplays for Hellbound, Hell on Earth, and Bloodline. Uh, and then by, by degrees, we had moved down to London and, um, formed the dog company. And, uh, between around, I think, like 1978 through 1982, uh, again, original plays by Clive, um, uh, which are published now and have been independently performed themselves. So titles may now be uh, familiar to people. Um, the history of the devil, which was my particular favorite. I played the devil in, in that, uh, Frankenstein in love, uh, paradise street, which is kind of a fantasy play set in Liverpool. Um, uh, and the, the dog company had kind of come to an end in 1982, and then 1986 we were doing Hellraiser. So I had been, I had worked with Clive as a director, 
because he directed nearly all the, the, the plays that we did during that decade of, of theatre work in, in Liverpool and London. But I'd also been very much front and centre of his creative world, not just in terms of theatre, but also the, the couple of movies we had uh, done together, but also his his writing and his artwork as well. So I had seen all that develop and being a part of that process uh, through that time. So it was more a kind of culmination of, of of that working relationship to get to Hellraiser rather than me working with him for the first time. It helped enormously, of course, because I was very familiar with that world and I kind of, so I, reading first The Hellbound Heart and then the, the screenplay for Hellraiser, you know, I, I, I could kind of, I, I knew where Clyde was. I knew where this belonged in his creative universe, I, I guess. So I, I had no idea you, you knew him as long as you did. Had, did he ever have this idea when you guys were younger about this, this, this story of, of Hellraiser, or it was just kind of something he worked on and figured out later on? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, um, I, who knows? I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. Um, uh, I don't, I don't remember any discussion, uh, about the ideas in, in Hellraiser prior to, um, uh, him writing the Hellbound Heart and then adapting that as Hellraiser, but nothing, nothing ever gets wasted in Clive's imagination. He's a great recycler. Um, uh, stuff comes around and gets reused and resurfaces, uh, you know, all the time. So I've, I've no doubt that there would be <coughs> bits and pieces of stuff from earlier work that fed into uh, Hellraiser. Yeah, if you would um, take kind of take us down memory lane and kind of get into how you landed the role and how you felt, you know, once you learned that you, you know, uh, were chosen for the role. He asked me. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so it, it, well, it's that simple. He he asked me, and I said, "Yeah." It makes sense, you know. Hearing this this story now, it, it makes a, a lot of sense. And did, did you got, did you, or even maybe even Clive, obviously he would feel it's a success and you hopped on the, the project. So you probably thought so as well, but did you ever envision it growing into what it has? <laughs> oh God. Um, uh, no, no. I mean, this would be crazy talk. Absolutely crazy talk. Uh, I think, Partly, I've said this before, but um, we we were not we were not being hugely successful mm-hmm. in the theatre world. I think, particularly when we came down to London, I think we had I think we had a sort of collective belief that um, what we were doing was so good, and I think it was. But what we were doing was so good that all we would have to do would be to lay our work out um, uh, in in front of people, and uh, and we would you know we would be hailed as geniuses and we'd be given the keys to the mansion on the hill and we'd we'd live in the sunlit sunlit uplands ever after. Um, 
and it didn't quite work out <laughs> like that. You know, we were doing we were doing dog company performances to the proverbial, um, you know, uh, two men and a budgery guy. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and although we although we we were successful and and people were starting to pay attention to us, we went up to the Edinburgh Festival a couple of times and we were very successful um, up there. Ollie Parker had joined the dog company by that time. Uh, uh, Ollie um, then played the the mattress delivery guy in Hellraiser and reprised his role in Hellbound and played Pelequin in uh, Nightbreed. And of course, now he's uh, he's a director in his own right. He's directed uh, Centrinians and uh, um, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray with Colin Firth. And uh, and uh, uh, I I had a, a small part in uh, An Ideal Husband with uh, Rupert Everett mm-hmm. and uh, Ollie directed. Um, so that that story grew out of. Of the dog company in uh, in London as well, but to, sorry, I, I digress. Um, uh, to specifically answer your question, I suppose I thought that, that Hellraiser would suffer a similar fate. Maybe I was just punch drunk on people ignoring what we were doing. I don't think I ever thought about it, to be honest. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think you do. I certainly don't think you should. Um, uh, it was just a case of, you know, get your head down and get the work done. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think a quick way to failure is to be convinced that this is the beginning of a franchise or that this is something that's going to make an indelible mark, uh, in, in the history of cinema, which I don't think it would be an exaggeration now to say it has done. No. I no, no way in the world I ever I ever saw it coming, and if if anyone had come to me on a damp Tuesday morning at Cricklewood Production Village, at you know at at five o'clock in the morning when I was sitting in the makeup chair, um, on this movie that I was being paid union minimum rates to make, and if I'd been paid any less, I think I would have been and clusters an extra. <laughs> Although I was making I was making a great deal more money uh than I had ever made out of acting before. I had I had come out of uh, uh doing provincial repertory theatre uh in England to Hellraiser, you know, where I'd been earning about a hundred quid a week and I was I was earning a great deal more money in Hellraiser than before, but nevertheless, you know bottom of the rung on the pay scale, uh, playing this character who had no name, uh, who's buried in latex, um, and uh, is going to be on screen for, I think, you know, about eight minutes or something. I, I, I don't know. I, fans have told me the precise length of time <laughs> I'm on the screen, um, but I, I don't think it's anything more than about 10 minutes. Um, uh, so, if 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 you had suggested to me then that where are we now? Thirty 
32 years later, I would be sitting here talking to you about this role. Um, uh, I, 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 wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have had any understanding of what you were talking about. <laughs> I, I would have thought you were slightly crazy. <laughs> I, knew we were doing, I knew we were doing something good, and I knew we were doing something interesting. Um, and I had faith enough in Clive. There was a huge gamble that New World took to put Clive behind the camera. He'd never directed a movie uh, previously. It was a huge gamble for them to invest in him, not only as the writer, but also as the director. But I knew enough about Clyde as a director, both visually and from an acting point of view, to know that, that he, would, um, he would make something remarkable visually out of this. Uh, but I, I, so I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll make a splash for a few weeks and, and then, you know, then it'll get forgotten and the world will move on to the next new thing. And no, I had absolutely, absolutely no notion in my head that it would make the impact um, that it has done. It seems to me the movie is more popular now than it's ever been which is even more remarkable to me. Its popularity seems to be growing. I, I definitely agree with you on that, and that's something I'm going to actually be mentioning later on. But I, I agree with you, and it's funny you brought that up. Uh, your character in the original film did not have a lot of film time, and it was just kind of... It, I've always found it so impressive that it caught on the way it did in, in such an enormous way with having such little you know, visual impact on the, the original film, and it was still able to capture um, the way it did. And I, I've always been impressed by that. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you who it took by surprise, and that's Clive. <laughs> <laughs> um, to the extent that I think, genuinely, he was a bit annoyed by it. Because mm -hmm. his focus was not on Pinhead and the Cenobites. Um his focus was very much on Julia, mm -hmm. Claire Higgins' role. Brilliant performance, magnificent performance mm -hmm. by Claire. Uh, but that's where his focus was. Uh, he was creating the first great female monster in horror films. And he, he said to me that when they were doing test screenings of the movie, I think particularly in this country before its release, when the cards were coming back, people kept talking about the Cenobite. Not, not just uh, Pinhead, not called Pinhead then, but it was the Cenobite that people kept referencing. Mm -hmm. um, now, it, it seems to me crazy that, that you wouldn't see this coming because you create these extraordinary characters visually so arresting and so unlike, I think, in a lot of ways, anything that has preceded them. Uh, and, you, you know, you put them up on the big screen. How is it possible that you don't expect horror, film, horror fans to go, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we like the film. Julia, yeah, yeah, she was fine. She was good. Yeah, great, great performance, great actress. But, oh, my God, the Cenobite. Um, <laughs> It seems it seems fairly obvious, but uh, that was what was happening. And I, I think 
I think while you know the success of the film obviously uh, delighted him, I, I think there was a little bit of annoyance <laughs> that these Cenobites were were creeping up and stealing the limelight. He's got such this personality to him, this deep, like dark intensity to him, and you know I would think that becoming him as a character would take a lot of preparation, and uh, it kind you know it comes through in the movie. Because as soon as he's on screen, he just commands your attention. And um, but was there anything special you did um, before filming to kind of channel this you know, sinister personality within Pinhead? Not really. I mean, I uh, I don't. I, I couldn't really see what I could do. If, if you see what I mean, um, you know, I well, I had I had quite first and foremost as the person who would you know literally dreamt this character up. So I talked to him a lot about it. And as I, I, as I said earlier, um, I, there were elements of what Pinhead was about and there were elements of the way Pinhead was speaking and there were elements of the things that Pinhead was saying that were already familiar to me, kind of distillations or echoes of things that had gone before in work that we'd done. So... I could get a hold of that. I talked to Clive. He gave me insights into the character. Um, he told me that I should look upon Pinhead as a, as a as a combination of a butcher and a monk. Hmm. Wow. Uh, uh, and I remember him saying to me, um, you're a surgeon in a hospital, but this is a hospital that has no wards, only operating theatres, and you are the person who wields the knife and who carries out all the operations personally, mm-hmm. but you're also the administrator. You're responsible for making sure everything runs on time. So, you know, I mean, these are these are not practical assists <laughs> to an actor, mm-hmm. but they're. They're imagined, they're invaluable imaginative insights. So it's a bit like steeping the tea bag in the water, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you, you drop it in and you, and you wait to see what flavors develop, I, I guess. He, he gave me a magazine to look at called PSIQ, which stood for Piercing Fans International Quarterly. Body modification was not as, as familiar and common on, you know, on, Main Street and the High Streets, as it is now. Um, uh, and this was a magazine devoted to people who were um, going in for body modification in a pretty extreme way. Um, and I, I had uh, associations in my own mind uh, from uh, um, uh, documentaries of of religious festivals and, and tribal uh, um, uh, 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 practices that, that I'd seen that included uh, both body modification and also, um, you know, the ideas of, of, of flagellation and of, of, of cutting yourself and in, in, in the cause of devotion to a god or a spirit or whatever it may be. So all of that was kind of going around in my head. 
Um, and I'd read The Hellbound Heart. I had the screenplay. And the, the, the screenplay is where you go all the time. You read the screenplay again and again and again and again and again. Um, and again, you know, just back to the steeping the tea bag in the water. Um, all, all the normal questions that an actor might ask himself were closed to me, you know? You know, what car does he drive? What does he eat for breakfast? Does he, does he watch sports? And if he does, does he favor soccer over cricket? Would be the question I'd be asking myself then, you know, as opposed to football over baseball or whatever. None of that applied. Um, uh, And as far as I was aware, there was nowhere I could go to watch Cenobites at work, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Um, uh, So, so you can't do any of that. None of that is applicable. It's, it's, then it's, it's an act of imagination. That's it. Mm-hmm. But I've said many times that the point at which I, for the first time, had the costume and makeup on, particularly the makeup, and I sat in front of the mirror. Uh, we did a screen test of the makeup, and that was about a six-hour application that first time with everybody feeling their way through it. I was already a bit spaced out from that, and I sat in front of the mirror on my own for maybe 15 minutes, and quite unashamedly, I say that I, I probably, I, I'm doing, I'm doing air commas, found mm, 95% of where I was going to go playing the character, just sitting, staring at myself in the, in the mirror. Mm. Um, and as I've said many times, you know, you, you, uh, you, you put, you put that makeup on me and that costume, Jane Wilder's is magnificent costume, which she kind of designed with Clive, but then just, just made so brilliantly. The image looks so incredible. You put those words in my mouth and then you put Chris Young's music behind me. You know, how can I go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's all set up for me. Um, uh, um, so I, but, but the, the real answer is I have no idea. You, you stand on your marks and somebody says action and you open your mouth and, Hope for the best. Yeah, I saw on social media that you had gotten into your full pinhead gear um, fairly recently. Um, what was it like to get into all that all over again um, year, years later? That, uh, that, that was uh, last year for the uh, the pinhead experience, which you did at uh, Mad Monster Party in, in uh, Phoenix. Um, yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it, it be, you know, it's become a thing recently uh, for... Um, with, uh, with uh, photo ops at the conventions uh, for actors to to get into makeup and costume, and I'd seen you know quite a few people do it. Gunnar had done it, and Sid Haig has done it. Uh, Captain Spaulding and uh, Bill Mosley have done it, and uh, and I'd I'd watched this and I thought, hmm, I wonder. Um, and of course, people 
had asked me about it. And my, my thing was always, I don't see how I can make this happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that I could get into makeup and costume and just do a regular photo op. Because mm-hmm. if I'm in makeup and costume, I can't be standing there going, hi, how are you? <laughs> Lovely to meet you. You know, and putting my arm around somebody and smiling for the camera. Thank you very much for coming and going on to the next person. That doesn't work. And I couldn't see um, how I could make that work. So I kind of resigned myself to not really being able to do it. And it but then I thought, well, flip it. If, if, uh, if Pinhead can't go into the fans' world, bring the fans into Pinhead's world. Mm-hmm. So what what we ended up doing, uh, um, my myself and my partner Steph, who put the whole thing together, latterly with invaluable help from uh, Steve Tolan, uh, Tolan FX here in Pittsburgh, and uh, um, uh, Jay Evans, I think his second name is. He'll forgive me if I've got that wrong. Who built the set for us in Phoenix? Um, and uh, um, uh, Alison and her partner, who were down in Nashville, who uh, made the new costume for me, because this, this was part of my my trouble. There was no makeup, there was no costume, there was no nothing. I had an idea of what we were going to do, which was to create a two minute walkthrough, um, uh, like a, a kind of like going through a room in a haunted house um, and that the photograph would be incidental, would be like the photograph on the uh, the roller coaster mm-hmm. ride. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so we put the whole thing together. It was, it was a lot of work. It was very stressful. Yeah, it cost me a lot of money, uh, which, which I made back. That was fine. Um, but uh, it worked. Brilliantly. Um, I mean, it really couldn't have gone any better. And we had such tremendous responses. But that would be the first time, I, I'm going to say, in 15 years. Wow. Uh, I think 14 or 15 years that I had had the full makeup and costume on. Um, and uh, it was... Um, it was like getting back on the bike. It was remarkably easy. I was surprised because I mm-hmm. thought it would be, I, I wasn't quite sure how I, and because this was a completely different uh, atmosphere and experience mm-hmm. to playing, you know, to, to going on a film set to do it. Almost like um, stage acting. But it was, well, it was kind of, yeah. it was like doing, I, I, I said it was, it was like doing it two-minute one-man show over and over and over and over <laughs> and over and over and over and over again. Um, or, or doing this, doing, you know, take one, take two, take three, <laughs> take one, like, work, working for Stanley Kubrick. Um, uh, um, but it, but it, it, I, I was surprised by how easy it felt to just, you know, I just thought, oh, I remember this. This is how I did it. This is what I do. Yes, I always had fun doing this. I like this. This is good. So, yeah, it was nice to be back there. And you had mentioned earlier, and I'm kind of uh, circling around a little bit to that. Uh, you had mentioned about the the franchise being more popular. the the whole The thing as a whole being a more popular now. And I feel as as fans, we've gotten 
you know, recent movie installments of, of the franchise, but there was always such a huge piece missing. And obviously that was you. And it almost made it, you know, borderline not enjoyable, in my opinion. So uh, you had mentioned it had been so long since you had put the, the whole costume on and the whole makeup and the whole gear and everything. Uh, 2005, the Hellworld edition of the franchise uh, for the Hellraiser franchise was the last time you played Pinhead in in the series. Why did yeah, that? Yeah, well, that, that and that that movie came out in 2005, mm-hmm. but actually we wrapped it at the end of 2002. Oh wow, it was a long, long. And don't ask me why why it was such a gap before it was released because I don't know. But but so yeah, so that although it came out in 2005, it was already by that time three three years old. Wow. 2002 was the last time I played the character. Oh, wow. I, I knew there was a delay. I didn't know it was that long. Wow. But um, what what um, why did you decide to not pursue the pinhead character in the later films? Uh, there was it was a variety of reasons. Um, uh, when Revelation uh, um, came along, um, it was a strange kind of offer. It was quickly apparent that the reasons why the movie being, was being made. Uh, was was not because somebody wanted to reinvigorate or bring life back into the franchise. It was being made really for political reasons. Mm-hmm. That Dimension Films were going to lose the rights to the franchise if uh, they didn't have this movie made in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that I mean, I was approached about making the movie in Ju- uh, July 2010, mm-hmm. and they needed to have the movie in front of the camera by September the 3rd, I believe, beginning of September, which was already, uh, you know, barely six weeks away. So it was, it was being made in a tearing hurry, um, uh, and they were spending no money on it. Um, and uh, I didn't think the screenplay was any good. Uh, so for all these reasons, um, I turned that down um, uh, uh, judgment got slightly more complicated and I didn't get as far as uh, reading the screenplay mm-hmm. um, uh, for I uh, I stepped aside uh, from judgment uh, uh, um, I, I, I I saw Revelation eventually um, yeah mm-hmm. uh, I haven't seen I haven't seen judgment so having not read the screenplay and having and, and I'm not trying to avoid it, I just haven't got round to it. I will one fine day, uh, but um, so I, I I can't make any comment on it. I, I I've met I've met Paul uh, Paul T Taylor who who's, who uh, played Pinhead in uh, in Judgment. I've never met the the guy who played him in uh, Revelation, mm. uh, but I've I've, I've I've met Paul, you know, and uh, I've always said good luck to him. And I've I've said uh, uh, I've said to fans in Q Q and A's, you know, the, you know, it's not you, it's not you, it's not you. And I, I've said, well, yeah, okay, it isn't me, but you know, uh, it's somebody else. And uh, um, you know, he's 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 an actor who got a gig with a target on his back, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, people people. Sh- People shouldn't be down on him 
because he's not me. Uh, that's simply not fair um, to, uh, to to a fellow professional actor. You know, mm. I mean, you you can you can you can think his performance is brilliant. You can think his performance is terrible as you see fit. That's your choice. But but you know, don't attack him or criticize him just because he's not called Doug Bradley. That's <laughs> that's wrong. Yeah, you're you're a hundred percent right. He he didn't stand a chance almost to begin with. And, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't know the whole background of, um, you know, how that film was created, but watching it, I didn't really want to watch it. And I said, you know what, I'll give it a shot. And I always said, whenever someone asked me what I thought about, about it, I always said it felt thrown together. And now hearing you say all this, it kind of, you know, it makes a little sense to where there wasn't the, the story and the passion in as in the earlier Hellraiser films, and I always thought that's what made it stand out among other things. But the story of it was so strong, and there was love and 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 killing, and all these things intertwined that you never really get in a horror film. And that's always what attracted me to the Hellraiser franchise. Yeah, well, I mean, Clive Clive very much talked about the, the first Hellraiser. I think he described it as uh, the, the first movie as. Ibsen with monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, he said it was. You know, it's a, it's a family drama with something nasty in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if it was a rumor or not. Uh, hopefully, you could clear it up. There has always been talks of uh, the Pinhead character and the Michael Myers character being a part of the Freddy vs. Jason film. Is there any truth to that, or were you ever approached for anything like that? Uh, yes and no. Not uh, not uh, not not truth that uh, that uh, Pinhead and Michael would become part of the Freddy versus Jason universe. Um, there's there's always there's, there's been a strong rumor going around that Pinhead was going to uh, become part of of that mm-hmm. world. Um, that obviously would be complicated because uh, Freddy and Jason were. Owned a new 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 line mm-hmm. had the rights to those franchises, so there you go. They can do what they like with that. Obviously, Pinhead uh, belongs to Dimension Films, Miramax, as was. Um, so it would have required, you know, cross studio cooperation if that was ever going to ha- going to happen. But uh, Dimension and Miramax also had the rights to Halloween ah. by the time Freddy vs. Jason came out. And it is absolutely true that they wanted uh, a, a Hellraiser. Well, I think I think the shorthand for it was a Halloween movie, a, a Hellraiser-Halloween crossover, uh, Pinhead vs. Michael, if you will. Um, and it was, it was uh, I believe, pretty serious. I certainly... Um, had a couple of conversations with Clive about it. Clive had said that he would write it, and John Carpenter said that he would direct it. Oh, my God. Um, and I was very excited by that combination. I'm getting excited right um, now. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was excited at the possibility of working with John because I, I was such a huge fan of his work. Um, my understanding... Is now I'm um, you know this is only what I get to hear, but my understanding is that uh, Musti Akkad, Mustafa Akkad, who was one of the the Akkad brothers who originally produced 
Halloween. He was he was tragically killed in a terrorist attack uh. in in the Middle East several years ago. Um, but my, my as I was told it, he simply said that he didn't want the movie made. And I I I I guess from whatever you know whatever master contract was written when they were producing the first Halloween film, clearly he had enough right of veto in a, in any future sequels that him saying don't want this to happen uh, was enough to to kill it stone dead. And I've never heard another word about it since. Wow! And and now hearing you saying that Clive was willing to write it and that was always my thing with it is how would it happen well what yeah i well i i i had a conversation with with clive um and, and you know he we we we'd both seen uh freddy versus freddy versus jason um um and uh you know we we agreed that what what couldn't really happen um would be uh that kind of, uh, you know, mano a mano confrontation between Freddy and Jason. You know, that, that works fine, uh, for those two characters, but it's not really Pinhead's MO, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what Clyde was saying that he was interested in was where do the landscapes intertwine? Where does, where does Pinhead's world meet Michael Myers' world? And I think his feeling was that, you know, particularly in, in that first movie, um, which I've always said works like a Dracula movie. If Michael is Dracula, you have, uh, Donald Pleasance's Loomis mm. as Van Helsing. And, uh, uh, Loomis spends the first part of the film, you know, running around screaming at anyone who listened to him, you don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know what you're dealing with. And this becomes like this repeated refrain in your head. I remember from seeing the film the first time, okay, okay, I don't know what I'm dealing with. Um, I'm slightly scared. And there was this, uh, this supernatural element mm-hmm. to Michael in, in the first film, which got a bit lost later, I think. But yeah. um, uh, um uh, so that in the context of the first film, when he got shot and he got up and carried on walking and, you know, got stabbed in the neck with the knitting needles and then appeared on the sidewalk staring at, uh, 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 up, at the, up at the window, it kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was prepared to get a hold of that side of Michael, that kind of supernatural side of Michael. You know, plus, plus he's a, um, he's a psychosexual, uh, sadistic killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's not w- with a, with a dodgy relationship with his sister? Um, uh, what's, what's not for Pinhead to get interested in? Right. I, I think was, I think was Clive's feeling. Um, but, but more than, I, I never saw a screenplay more than that. I I never knew. Ah, uh, see now you 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 just put a recipe on the table with with Clive and John <laughs> and you and it's like you, you <laughs> Mr. Bradley, we got to talk to you today and I was so happy and you just broke my heart a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I and yeah, it's okay. But- thinking Clive would be involved with it was what 
intrigued me even more because it's like he's such a creative writer how is he going to get there and i was i knew it would be good i just didn't know how he would do it and that that would thinking outside the box of that that myers character you know it makes sense that he would do something like that right but um i i have to ask you the million dollar question if if you were ever offered a legitimate Hellraiser film, would you come back to return as that character? I, I've never said I'm done with it. I've never never closed the door okay. on it. Uh, so, um, you know, right script, right circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Um, sure, I'd consider it. Absolutely. Um, um, and I didn't just say a flat no to the last two films. You know, there were, um, I, it was It was decisions that I made, mm-hmm. um, you know, rightly or wrongly, for other people to decide. I made those decisions. But, yeah, I've never closed the door on it. I mean, I've, you know, I've said, um, uh, and I, I hasten to add that as far as I'm aware, there are no plans in this direction that I'm aware of. But uh, if, I was to, if I was to be able to pick um, a bookend, as it were, to... To my experience of playing Pinhead, it would be to get a really good, solidly budgeted, really good screenplay, good adaptation of the Scarlet Gospel, mm. uh, uh, um, and, uh, and 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 close it out that way. Don't get excited, Internet. Damn it! As far as I'm aware, it's not happening. So it's only my bucket list. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just so interesting because you know Pinhead is, as, as you developed him, he's just one of the scariest um, horror characters of all time, in my opinion. Every time I've ever seen him, he's you know he's just he's truly scary, and he's left that mark on the horror genre. But um, I'm I'd like to hear your um, influences as you were growing up. Did you um, look up to any fan uh, actors as a fan or as an actor uh, as an influence? Uh, as actors, particularly, I would say the 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 first the first two big influences on my life uh, would be John Lennon and um, Bill Shankly, and these are both obviously very much uh, relate to my growing up in Liverpool, because I guess I you know I guess I was what eight eight going on nine, I think, when Love Me Do hit the charts. Um, just as I was becoming aware of the existence of this thing called pop music, as we knew it then. <laughs> not not rock, it was pop music. Uh, just as, you know, the, the Beatles and my city were about to become the, um, the, the, the epicenter of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and John also attended uh, Quarry Bank, the school that Clive and I uh, were were at when we met school plays. As I was uh, describing earlier, though, uh, a decade a decade before us, uh, of course. Um, and I, I I gravitated to John, I think, partly because he was he was the one my dad didn't like. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, he was the dangerous one. He was the one who opened his mouth and got himself into trouble. So, I, and I kind of liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and lot, you know, lots of other lots of other figures in in the music world that made a big impact on me too. Obviously, lots and lots. Um, uh, 
because I've always I've always been a big music fan too. Bill Shanky was the manager of my football club when I was growing up in Liverpool, uh, Liverpool Football Club. And he was a wonderful, 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 wonderful man. Uh, and he's always been a, a touchstone and, a, and an inspiration uh, to me. Um, Liverpool Football Club was a passion that came into my life in the early early 1960s um, and uh, never let me go. Uh, I'm, as, I'm as passionately committed a supporter now as I ever have been. Um, in terms of actors, God, there are so many. Um, in, in the horror genre, I've said many, many times in answer to this that Peter Cushing is my God in, 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 in horror movies. Now, I, I said that my, my introduction to horror was watching those Hammer movies on Granada TV on Monday evenings in the early 1970s. And it was pushing that I got a hold of, but I was already familiar with, because uh, he, um, he played Sherlock Holmes for the BBC, uh, in the 1960s. So he was kind of my first Sherlock Holmes. He's also one of my favorite Doctor Who's. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, Hammer did two, two movie adaptations of Doctor Who with Cushing playing, playing the Doctor. Um, and I just, I, I, I worship at, at, at his feet, really. Uh, and I've always said that you, you, you look at the ability that he, that he had to produce that, that white hot, pure intensity that he had playing Van Helsing uh, opposite Christopher Lee's Dracula. Uh, but then he could flip it around uh, and when he, and playing uh, Baron Frankenstein in Hammer's Frankenstein mm-hmm. series, he flips it around. And, and I, I've always said, I, I think that that series of Hammer movies, Cushing becomes the, 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 the center of it. Quite unusually with Frankenstein, with Hammer, it's not, it's not the creature who becomes the focus uh, of the series. It's, it's Cushing's Baron. And as you go down through the series, particularly some of the later films, um, uh, I, I, I like particularly Frankenstein and the monster from hell and, uh, Frankenstein created woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cushing's portrayal gets more and more amoral. And I, I, I think it's one of the great, the great studies in evil ever put on, on, on film. Um, James Mason, as always, was always an actor that I, I was just astonished by, again, the breadth of what he was able to do. Robert Duvall later in the, in the 70s, Duvall became a great favorite of mine. Uh, and uh, he he has that great ability to be good in shit. <laughs> um, you know, there's a number of actors who can do that. Um, uh, um, so, but, you know, there's so many, you know, 
I don't, I, this could become a very long and tedious conversation, but I'll settle <laughs> for them at the moment. For sure. I mean, uh, just hearing it, – it's such a strange thing hearing somebody that we – you know, because we have kind of the same outlook towards you and, you know, uh, like Robert England and people, you know, from our our genre, what we grew up with. And it's it's strange hearing somebody like you talk about all these people that you look up to. It's just it always kind of freaks me out a little bit. Mr. Bradley, I have one last question for you, and um, I'm hoping you can settle a debate that we've had on this show for a while. <laughs> Um, Uh-oh. are you familiar with the, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies and the Leprechaun franchise? Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yes. Uh, Leprechaun, not really. I, I'm aware of it. I, I can't say that I'm familiar. Ah, oh, man. But I'll <laughs> help you if I can. What's the question? <laughs> well, it, it, and it's it, it kind of ties into the the Myers versus Pinhead thing you touched on. If Leatherface and the Leprechaun were to have gotten into a fight, who do you think would come out victorious? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> As ridiculous. <laughs> this is a debate we've been, we've had going on for a while. That's <laughs> insane. Believe it or not. <laughs> What what the fuck is the leprechaun doing? <laughs> in, uh, okay, well, um, uh, it's it's in boxing terms, it's no context contest. Um, and Leatherface would literally have him for lunch. Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Damn, see what? Damn, you broke my heart again. So. <laughs> Why, who's so we got... the leprechaun? Who, who's 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 in the leprechaun's corner? Uh, not to say any names, but I do think that leprechaun. <laughs> It's um, me versus him. I'm in Texas, and oh. so I, he's always known that I've been a big Texas Chainsaw fan, and um, he's always it's been it's against it's me with it, saying Leprechaun is better and the movies are better, and so that's what it oh, turned shit. into. <laughs> I never said the movies were better. No, she's getting <laughs> to say that, she's getting you're, carried you're away. Very, very wrong, sir. Very wrong. Texas <laughs> uh, Chainsaw Massacre is is a great movie. Oh, I agree. A great movie. I agree. And a game changing movie. Oh, historical. To be honest. It, it was kind of the movie that snuck under the wire for me. It suddenly mm-hmm. appeared in what, early early 70s, I guess. And it, and it was, you know, where did this thing come from? <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's a superb movie. I never said, April got a little carried away. I never said the movie was better. All I said was, uh, she annoyed okay. me about it and wouldn't stop making no, fun of No, you said Leprechaun. it was better. That, that's for another <laughs> another day. But all right, so we um, got your side, no. Mr. Bradley. I appreciate that ridiculous question being answered. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome, but it's, it's, a land, it's a landslide for Leatherface. Uh, no, no question about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, Mr. Bradley, again, I, I can't. There's not enough words in my vocabulary to thank you for enough for coming on and talking with us. Um, April, I know you had some notes on, um, you know, the Doug's website and all that stuff. Yes. Um, I saw that people can um, actually buy photos. Is that correct? With signatures and things like that? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, 10 by 8 uh, are available. You can, you can order them. You can tell me what... Uh, uh, what dedication you want on them, or no dedication at all? Give me your name, and I'll sign it to you. And uh, uh, so, ten by eight, uh, the the book is available uh, at the store. Uh, spine chillers are available at the store. 
uh, t-shirts are available. So, yeah, uh, all at dougbradley.com. You're very welcome. Thank Bye. you, guys. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Mmm, Doug Bradley. That was amazing. Guys, don't forget to go to slasherradio.com to check out all these interviews and more. Around this time that this interview was released, by the way, we had an interview with David Arquette that was, uh, I think the week of, this was a Halloween special. That's right, this is a bonus episode that we threw down for you guys. And the week of this release was a David Arquette interview, so you can check that out. John K. Sear, the Crypt Keeper himself, Greg Nicotero, Tony Todd. Our catalog is great. Go to SlasherRadio.com, check all that out. And also subscribe to us. It helps us a lot. Leave a review. And you can check me, Rob, and Cat out every week on this feed, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts. That's where you'll find us. And don't forget to check out the Patreon, guys. We put out a lot of extra content. The Easter eggs every week are on there. Uh, Rob's Audio Network is on there. All the episodes for that, they're hilarious. And just a lot of extra stuff, commentary tracks, the whole nine yards. Go check it out, patreon.com forward slash slash radio. And we will catch you guys next time. Good night from Slasher Radio. All the best of Slasher Radio podcast. Let's <laughs> go.